Let me ask you a question. What did we do last time? It was just like, hey, and names. Do we have to say where we're from again? Yeah, let's just start into it. Okay. Hey, everyone. This is Chris. And this is Kara. And, and this is the Sausage of Science. And Yay! You can't get better than that. No, that's a good point. Good point. So how have you been? Uh, I've been all right. Busy. I, I'm sure everybody's feeling the fall semester crunch as we uh, barrel towards Thanksgiving. But so, Chris, I heard you guys had a really fascinating seminar talk at uh, Alabama recently. Oh, yeah. So uh, you guys are going to hear more from Nina Jablonski for this podcast. Uh, I've never actually been able to see like a long form talk from Nina Jablonski. Oh. How amazing was that? When you, you know, did it was great. And I'll tell you, one of the things that I took away from the talk, as much as just the richness of her work, right? I mean, Nina Jablonski is first and foremost a paleoanthropologist and a primatologist and has come to human biology and this expertise on the, the biology and culture of skin a little bit later in her career. And it's, it's brought these things together. But one of the things that I took away as a science educator was just how friggin' articulate she is. And this is something I asked her about in the car afterward because I had the, the great pleasure of hosting her for this event. So the, the, the benefit of being the host is you get lots and lots of FaceTime with these amazing, these amazing experts. And so I asked her, I said, I could ask you questions about your field site and all that, but let me ask you about your speaking style. Her speaking style, and I'm trying to give a sense of it now, lacks any of the vocal hiccups that we all generally employ, the ums and ahs. And so her speech is very measured and everything she says is extraordinarily thoughtful and spot on, not just because she's done this many, many times over, but because she takes those pauses and takes care to be precise. You would see that I'm using a lot of hand gestures and she talked about that and about the way she moves around the stage and uses space, that was great. So you brought up two points that I think are really important to highlight. One, going back to your kind of the timeline of Nina Jablonski's career, starting as a primatologist, paleoanthropologist, all of that. And then now she's moved into this kind of human biology of skin. And I always like highlighting how broad of a field biological anthropology is and human biology is and how much it actually how pervasive it is throughout all of science and how flexible it is for us to really seek out what it is we're passionate about and truly explore. Uh, and that's one thing I love about the field. So I wanted to gush about that. Um, second, it's so important to be a good speaker, to get your message out. And I think that's something that not just anthropologists, but science on a, as a whole needs to work on. Uh, we need to be better communicators, not just with our colleagues, but with everybody else in the world who can benefit from the work we do. So if you could give me one thing, one thing new that you learned, and I'm sure with all of your classes, you've talked about her work extensively in, in what you teach. So I'm curious if there was one thing that you didn't know or surprised you during her talk or interview. Yeah, so one of the things that her skin, a natural history book is is older, but here's the value of going back and reading and rereading works is despite these people being at the pinnacles of our field, we often miss huge discoveries. 
And I didn't know that light skin color, and, and I'll say one of the things that I came away with was, uh, we asked her about the politics and she uses the word pigmentation to get away from a lot of the politics of talking about skin color. And it's non-controversial when we talk about pigmentation. And so it makes it easier to get around some of those issues without avoiding them and then address them directly if you need to. But light pigmentation evolved at least twice independent of each other. Huh. So this idea of skin color being about adaptation to UV radiation and geographic distribution has even more evidence than we had previously or than we commonly recognized. And I thought that was profound. Yeah, that's fascinating. And did she talk about that kind of the journey that took her to using pigmentation rather than saying skin color? I'm sure it didn't start that way for her. Yeah, we actually asked her about that in the interview. So we'll... Uh, so without further ado, let's listen to our interview with Nina Jablonski. Sounds good. And keep the sausage of science rolling. Right on. Grinding. So we're here with Dr. Nina Jablonski, Evan Pugh University professor at Penn State. She's a biological anthropologist. She is the author of two fantastic books. One is Skin and Natural History, and the other is Living Color, the Biological and Social Meaning of Skin Color. So I'll... I guess I'll take the first question. Um, we really are interested in your personal story and the, the trajectory of the science. So that is what led you to the study of skin color. Was there a particular thing that triggered you to switch from studying primate evolution and fossils to race and human skin color? This is an interesting study in the importance of serendipity in science. One day when I was working at the University of Western Australia in 1991, I was sitting in a seminar room listening to one of my colleagues from the medical school talk about the importance of the vitamin called folate in, in early human development. And I was absolutely fascinated by this because just three weeks before that, I had been giving a lecture on the evolution of skin for a big class in human biology. And I had been really disappointed in giving that class that there were so few papers that really explained for anyone the, the reasons why human skin color varied. There were a few ideas that had been presented, but there was no comprehensive theory one of the papers that I had read when I was preparing to teach that class was a paper by two investigators that had been published in Science in 1978 where they had observed that this important B vitamin, folate, was labile and susceptible to damage from strong simulated sunlight and ultraviolet radiation. And I realized that this was part of the reason that human protective pigmentation had evolved. So for no particular reason, I was sitting in the back of the seminar room, the penny dropped, and it all began there because I realized that this was an important insight that needed to be pursued. 
the lecture that I was listening to at the time was about the importance of folate in embryonic development and in overall reproductive success. And what it demonstrated was that if a woman is deficient in folate during her early pregnancy, she will almost certainly either abort or give rise to uh, an embryo and fetus that has a significant defect that is incompatible with reproductive success. And I realized that in evolutionary biology, there are few smoking guns, but this had all the look of being one. So that's when it started, by entirely by accident, and it's been a very gratifying trip. I continue to do work in primate paleobiology. I've never put it down, but I've worked more and more over the years on the evolution of skin and skin color because it's been such a captivating area and an area in which there is so much interest on the part of anthropologists, evolutionary biologists, healthcare workers in the broadest sense, as well as sociologists and politicians. So it's it's been a fantastic thing to do research on. And the whole thing about skin as a physical and social interface with the world is something that that people rarely think about. But it's like when you bring it to their attention, it's like, yeah, yeah, you got a point there. And and I actually created a, a course that I'm now teaching called Skin Evolution Biology and Culture because I realized this is a rich way to bring kids who are not necessarily interested in anthropology as a major or as a lifestyle, but who want an anthropological perspective on sort of their own bodies. It's a way to bring in all sorts of sort of good anthropology, biological anthropology, archaeology, cultural anthropology, even linguistic anthropology. It is, it's superb. The vast majority of feedback from people on you know, many continents, many audiences, many backgrounds has been, why isn't this information in our schools? This information is so valuable. We need, everybody needs to know this. Everybody needs to understand this in the world. I think the reception has been good because I have worked hard to maintain sort of clear speaking and the use of neutral language in giving lectures on this topic, which is always hard because, you know, picking words is a, is, a, is a cultural process. You can't help but have a culturally freighted message at some level. But to the extent that I have tried to dissect out as much sort of pejorative or inflammatory speech or labels that, that have emotional associations, I've tried to do so. And when you present evidence to people in a framework that has been sort of dissected of a lot of its emotional content, people look at the evidence and they say, yeah, yeah, what's the big deal? And what's really exciting is when kids see it and they, and they say, yeah, I understand this completely. Why have people made such a fuss? So I think so much of talking about these traditionally controversial subjects is in how you talk about them, the words that you choose. So I've worked very hard to, you know, to create sort of a, a vocabulary that, that works for describing phenomena that is not emotional. And then 
in talking about how people have interpreted skin color in social frameworks, I look at a fairly strict sort of historical uh, um, array of information. I say, well, look who said this at what time and what means did they have to disseminate their information and who was paying for them to disseminate their information. Uh, And when people begin to dissect the historical accounts and the propagation, especially of ideas about race and racism from that perspective, again, it becomes very clear and you realize, okay, we've all been hoodwinked. When are people going to wake up? So uh, it took me some time to develop this approach, and I'm still always refining it. But I get relatively little negative feedback, and most people say, I've never thought about this this way. I wish I had learned about this much earlier. And young people, especially, and I talk to a lot of audiences in South Africa, uh, where I do a lot of my work these days, feel relieved. They come up to me and they say, I was taught that I was, you know, less than human, that I did not deserve to be on this earth, that I was created as an inferior being. You know, why haven't I learned the science and this other view of reality before? So it's worthwhile. Uh, I've, I've found it very enjoyable and worthwhile, always challenging, but generally uh, conducing to a lot of positive feedback. I think one of the the clearest examples of this is when you're um, when you're actually describing what people look like. Uh, if you use words that have a historical association in this country, such as black, uh, people will develop most people who have been socialized in the United States will develop a specific sort of visualization. Whereas if you talk about people who are darkly pigmented, that visualization is far more generalized. And people are not viewing this this sort of uh, cultural construct of a quote-unquote black person or a white person by by the same token. They're, they're looking at that characteristic. So I think the refraining from using traditional race names, traditional group names, is is actually very important. You can't help but talk about people of African ancestry, African Americans, Afro-Caribbeans, or whatever. Uh, You need to use descriptive terms to some extent, but to the extent that you can use ones that have as little emotional valence as possible and as few historical associations. I think that is really important. One of the most surprising things that has happened is in the last 15 years, the the unveiling of increasing amounts of genetic information that has supported some of our uh, hypotheses about the evolution of skin color in a surprising way, specifically that similar skin colors or similar levels of of pigmentation have evolved independently 
genetically independently in numerous populations as people have dispersed hither and thither over the Earth's surface in the last several tens of thousands of years. So that has been like a surprise and a delight that we have such an extensive palette, as it were, uh, of genes that, that are responsible for skin pigmentation that in the course of human evolution, as people have dispersed to various places and gene pools have gotten restricted and, and distorted by processes of, of founder effect, for instance, that, that you get similar genetically-based adaptations to environmental solar conditions using different genes. That has been just well, it's just been such a powerful illustration of how evolution can work. If you have the genetic variability that allows particular variants to develop, and if the selective pressure is there, uh, you will get a similar sort of trait appearing. That has been, at one level, expected, but looking at the mechanisms, super cool and surprising. So we have a few... um Chewy questions here for you. Um, so I'm going to make a bad pun. Um, you touch upon Ashley Montague's categorization of cultures as contact, do an air quote, and non-contact in, in your book, Skin. Um, and you characterize modern America as, quote, touch-averse. Um, so, and then these, these come straight from your book. Um, with touch aversion comes higher rates and severities of corporal punishment or maybe domestic violence, I'm guessing. And um, we're, as, as an American culture, we're increasingly sensitive to inappropriate and unwelcome touching and personal boundaries, yet we're also increasingly aware scientifically of the value of touch, which is what your point is in that chapter. Um, so it seems that we could benefit from increased but safe physical contact. So that said, this is a bit of a straw man question, I recognize, but I think it's worth talking about something that seems otherwise implicit. Where where do you stand on these issues, um, especially with regard to some of the, the current controversy about trigger warnings and purported university oversensitivity and protecting people against microaggressions, both verbal and physical? We are in a really interesting space, as it were, uh, in respect to integrating touch into human societies. I think it's worth saying from a, an anthropological perspective that we evolved in close physical contact with one another, that we have never been in a time or place when we have been divorced from physical contact, when we have not had strong physical contact with our mothers, especially, and with other people in our close social group. So we come from this rich evolutionary legacy, even without talking about non-human primates, we come from this rich evolutionary legacy of affiliative, positive social touch. This is not to say that there hasn't been interpersonal violence associated with touch, but the importance of social touch 
in the mother-infant bond and in early development is essential for normal growth of the body and normal emotional growth. And humans have thrived on this. We've thrived on this not only in the context of our own maternal uh, support networks, but in all of the people in our social group who would touch us as babies and who would help to provide security and emotional support for us. So that is our sort of evolutionary substrate, as it were. So fast forward into the last few centuries of, of increasingly urbanized life and with different modes of social organizations, different levels of, of segregation of females and males and partitioning of of social touch contact between people. And we we do see the increasing evolution of sort of touch-averse and touch-permissive societies. We won't go into all of this. It's fascinating. But in the United States and in much of uh, Western Europe today, we have a, a touch-averse legal framework that has been born out of the primacy of human rights, and especially concerns over inappropriate contact on women and children. So we have developed, sort of in the, in the swinging of the pendulum, uh, some very restrictive uh, legal frameworks for what constitutes appropriate touch in social contexts. And this has been done with the best intentions to protect people who are physically vulnerable, females in general, infants and the elderly. But in the classic way of the pendulum swinging too far in one direction, we have now created a situation first of all, where there is almost no touch that can be permitted, even in situations of terrific social anxiety in schools, universities, and care facilities. So people who clearly need the reinforcement of touch are now deprived of it because caregivers have to withhold, or potential caregivers have to withhold touch. You also have a situation that that complements this, in which now individuals who have been largely deprived of touch during much of their upbringing are, are hypersensitive to it. And this is a natural sensory development. If you don't have a lot of touch as, you, as you're growing up, you are going to be more sensitive to it uh, at various times in your upbringing, especially in, in times of emotional distress. And so people have become more sensitive to it and more socially attuned to be on the lookout for it. So we have and I'm not trying to be flippant here, we've gotten ourselves into a, into a very difficult situation because we have created situations in which individuals are protected from inappropriate touch, but also where they are not receiving the affiliative touch that they need to help calm some of their social anxiety. We need to somehow figure out how to swing the pendulum back a bit and 
so that we understand the role of affiliative touch and understand the boundaries of the the acceptable boundaries of touch. I think that we need to be able to reintroduce caring touch into school frameworks among teachers who are sensitive to the misuses and abuses of this in the past. We need to be able to have kids understand what is touch that is appropriate and inappropriate when touching their 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 classmates or their friends uh, so that they can grow up with these attitudes. Right now, we have, we've got this charged uh, medico-legal framework in which people are now so hypersensitive about being touched in public contexts or in contexts in which the touch might be considered sexual contact, that, uh, that we have societal hypervigilance. And, and sadly, I see a lot of, of sometimes overreaction and social pathology resulting from this. We need to understand here the scientific evidence, which is now strong and compelling for the importance of touch in, in normal human life. We need not, to, not only to understand all of the evolutionary stuff, but the real evidence that, that uh, psychologists and neurophysiologists and neurobiologists have accumulated in the last 20 years showing that touch is absolutely essential to human life, to normal growth and development of babies, to normal emotional development of of babies and children, to normal interactions between kids, to the reduction of social anxiety between between pair-bonded individuals or within a family. We need to reintegrate touch, and we need this, this this needs to happen with with reference to this really good science that's been going on. It's not just sort of it's not just sort of a nice thing to do. It's a really important thing to do. Getting touch back into an acceptable social framework will probably take a few generations, but I think we have the 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 smarts and the machinery to be able to do this, but it has to be an evidence-based set of arguments now, not just a bunch of people saying, oh, yes, it's a good thing. It's like, no, let's look at the evidence from the newborn intensive care nurseries. Let's look at the at the dementia patients and the cancer patients who are benefiting from affiliative touch. Let's look at the people with depression who are benefiting from affiliative touch. When these bodies of evidence are marshaled coherently, we will be able to, I think, normalize our attitudes and our legal frameworks. That's it. Till next time, stay tuned. We will have Nina Jabonski's expurgated lecture from her visit to the University of Alabama for you very shortly. Mm-hmm.